is Sean Smallman. Welcome to Dispatch 7. Today I'll be talking to Robert Asadi about Iran, its politics, and the United States. Robert has a new monograph out with Lexington Books called Post-Revolutionary Iran, The Leader, the People, and the Three Powers. Robert, I'm really grateful that you're on the podcast today and that we can get to talk to you a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? And maybe you can say a little bit about growing up Persian-American in Iowa. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Sean. Uh, Thanks for having me. Um, Growing up Persian-American in Iowa, you know, I'm reminded of the Tolstoy quote from the beginning of Anna Karenina, right? All happy families are the same, but every unhappy (laughs) family is unhappy in its own particular way or something like that. Thinking about growing up uh, in Iowa, you know, much of my experience was, I suppose, rather mundane in its uh, normalcy and, you know, kind of the typical Midwestern experience growing up. I was actually born in Baltimore, Maryland. uh, But then when I was about a year or two old, my family relocated back to Iowa, which uh, is where my mother is from. Yeah, so much of my time growing up, uh, I grew up in a small town called Clinton uh, in eastern Iowa. If you know, like the geographic shape, if you can imagine the geographic shape of Iowa, it's like the nose, you know, on the border with Illinois uh, in the far east. But, you know, to connect it to my identity as Persian American, there were moments that I recall now as kind of reminders that we were different as a family. Like I remember I must have been five or six years old. The first Gulf War had just ended. So that was February of 91. Uh, It was either the following summer or maybe the summer after. Playing in the front yard with my brother and sister and my parents and a car driving by and someone yelling uh, something like, go back to Iraq, get out of this country, something like that. Some, you know, ethnic slur that I won't repeat here, but that is targeted toward people from the Middle East or with Middle East heritage. And I remember even as a small child, like, that was really strange. Why did that happen? You know, mom, dad, why did that person yell at us? And not really explaining it, uh, you know, maybe they felt I was like too young at the time to make sense of that. But, you know, aside from kind of stories like that, or I remember my father sharing a story during the hostage crisis when he tried to make a call back to his family in Iran. Uh, And at that time, you know, you'd have to go through an international operator uh, and the the operator refused to connect him and said, uh, why should I connect you when you people are holding our boys? Oh, my. And so there were stories like that, kind of reminders of how we were different and how we didn't exactly fit in. But I can say, you know, much of my childhood, like I said, it was very normal. Uh, I played sports, you know, uh, I was able to fit in, you know, because being Persian American, you're essentially white passing, you know, you're not, uh, maybe not until someone sees your last name or something like that, would they get a sense that you're not, you know, of European descent or something? I would say, you know, the big turning point, 
for me happened uh, when I was a sophomore in high school. Uh, and that was uh, September 11th, 2001, which I remember so well. I was in my uh, Western civilization class. And five minutes after the class was supposed to start or so, you know, teacher's not there. Everyone's just talking. Uh, and then the teacher came in uh, and she was, you know, had like visibly been crying. And she kind of explained something happened, you know, just hang tight and school is probably going to be dismissed. And we were let out early. I think it was a Tuesday. I may be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure. And I remember going back to school the next day and someone at the school said, uh, one of my classmates said, like, why did you do that to us? Like, why did, you know, what would, like, was your family involved in that or something? Like, this is like pretty, you know, this is like a small town in Iowa. So they, they, you know, there's not, not a clear sense of like what was really happening at that time. And, and uh, yeah, then feeling like I really need to explain myself to people and, and, and let them know, well, yes, I'm a, a Muslim, but not like that. And suddenly feeling I had to like disavow so much of my own identity to fit in more. And really, yeah, after that, so that was my sophomore year in high school. I think looking back, that was really the starting point of me getting really interested in international relations, politics, and trying to understand more about myself and how as someone of a, you know, a, a multicultural family, uh, how I fit in the broader kind of fabric of American society. And you're a successful and engaged faculty member. You've won our teaching award at PSU. What are some of the key things that you aim to convey to your students in the classroom about Iran? Yeah, I think a few a few big themes um, I, I try and I try and raise with the students. And actually, in uh, my book, which just came out, I conclude the acknowledgement section by talking about my students, and I I conclude by you know expressing how I feel so indebted to my students for the work that we do in the classroom in collaboration to imagine the future otherwise. And I think that's a really important theme for me, not only in my classes about Iran, but in general about, you know, Middle East politics or political science is this idea that um, the way things are now isn't necessarily the full universe of what is possible. Um, and so, you know, some of the ways specifically about Iran that I talk about that is to try to emphasize to the students the newness of the Islamic Republic political system. So we talk about, you know, this idea of Iran as an Islamic Republic is only 42 years old from February 1979 and put that in the context of 2,500 years of monarchy in Iran. It's it's just a sliver and we don't know what this system can be. And I, you know, try to get students to think about Iran in comparison to other uh, post-revolutionary societies and to say, you know, for example, 42 years after the Bolshevik revolution in the Soviet Union, you know, that was just shortly after Khrushchev's secret speech in which he denounced the excesses of Stalinism and tried to chart a new path for the Soviet Union. Or look at China, 
40 years after the revolution would have been, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the kind of core of uh, the Deng Xiaoping era of reform and transfer, transformation. And of course, you know, those efforts, you know, weren't wholly successful and, and uh, you know, much of what was inherited was reproduced, but there was also still the potential for change. So I try and highlight, you know, just how new the system is and, and also about Iran you know, Iran is a country of uh, around 85 million people. There's often, when we talk about Europe, like the idea that the UK, France, and Germany kind of are some cultural, you know, the three kind of cultural pillars of Europe, that they have these traditions. If you think about the Middle East, there's some argument to make for Turkey, Iran, and maybe Egypt as like the most populous states in the region, the hearts of Turkish, Arab, and Persian culture, respectively. Um, and so just how vast Iran is, how diverse it is, you know, we often think of Iran as a Persian country, but only about 60% of Iranians are ethnically Persian. You know, Iranian is a nationality, Persian is an ethnicity. And so trying to highlight how multifaceted Iran is and that the country, you know, it's not reducible to the government or the state alone. And much of Iranian history is about a very contentious relationship between society and state. And so I really try and bring that out uh, in, in my classes about Iran. In your time in Portland, quite apart from the classroom, you've worked tirelessly to bring discussions of Iran and events in Iran to the local community. Can you tell me a little bit more about your commitment to this work? Uh, I've always admired public intellectuals. You know, I remember... When I was an undergrad, I became an avid viewer of Democracy Now! and uh, used to love seeing uh, academics debate, you know, on, on those shows, like figures like Noam Chomsky, Cornel West, uh, Reza Aslan was one of my favorites as an Iranian-American scholar of comparative religion. And so uh, I just had a lot of admiration for the, this idea that faculty, you know, in addition to publishing their work in academic journals, which I think, you know, you'd probably agree with me that as important as that work is, it doesn't exactly reach the widest audience. No, it does not. Yeah, it doesn't really reach the lay the lay person. Um, and so in addition to that, and in addition to their teaching and all their work, that they still tried to bring the knowledge that they had of, of these subjects to the broader public. Um, and I, I just, uh, maybe I'm a bit naive or a, an idealist, but I just believe in that mission. And I think if, if someone is able to, to, to do that and to communicate in a way that uh, the average person who doesn't have a lot of time to invest in deep study of these topics uh, can understand uh, that that is a, a laudable thing to try to do. So that, that, that has been important to me uh, since I've been here at Portland. And, you know, I'll, I'll talk to anyone who will have me. Uh, I've given talks in high schools. I've given talks in retirement communities. So I, I span the, the whole gambit in terms of the ages of uh, audiences. And I think it's been really useful for me to think about the importance of audience and how the ideas we're trying to communicate they they could be complete you know 
totally brilliant in our mind, uh, but if the listener is has no context for what we're talking about, uh, it's going to fall flat. Um, also, you know, it goes back, I think, to this this point about my identity that there is, you know, being Iranian American, there is, I think, a unique role that I can play existing in these two communities in the Iranian diaspora. And then, you know, really, I, I was born and grew up in the United States. Culturally, I think I'm very American. My first language is English. And I know we're going to talk about language in a moment. But, you know, I'm a product of public education, kindergarten through PhD. And, I, and I'm, I'm very proud of that. I believe in the mission of public education. But this point about being Iranian American, uh, Pew actually does you know, Pew does favorability polls. Right. Uh, they ask nationally representative samples of Americans, like, do you have a favorable or unfavorable view of some country? Uh, and they've been asking that question about Iran since uh, the late 1980s. And it's interesting, if you look at that data, around 80, 85, 90% of Americans respond to that poll and say they have an unfavorable view of Iran. So. Uh, that's puzzling to me of how this persistent unfavorable view uh, is so widely held in American society. You know, a, a big part of it, I have no doubt, is a legacy of the hostage crisis and the events of the Iranian Revolution. But you know, I I know this from my time teaching, like our students at PSU who are very intelligent. Uh, in the past, I've given them a map quiz on the first day of class. You know, impromptu half of them can't locate Iran on the map. And these are smart people. And so if the average American, 80 to 90% is saying they have an unfavorable view of a country that I know probably many of them, if not most, can't even locate on a map, uh, that to me is a problem. Uh, and so that also is a motivation for me to try to uh, bring these discussions about Iran to the local community. I love language learning. So I'm always curious about other people's experiences with languages. Can you talk a little bit about your own study of Persian? And I know you use it in your research, both reading documents in Farsi and engaging in interview activities. How did this become a working language for you? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I grew up uh, in an environment where Persian was spoken in the home. My education, you know, as a, as a kid and through high school was all in English, obviously. And I never attended like uh, a Persian language, you know, school kind of on the side or, or, you know, anything like that. But, you know, I, I grew up around conversational Persian, I think first more than the written, the written language. So things like, you know, salutations, kind of common phrases, talking about foods, things like that. My father, one of his brothers, my uncle, also came to the United States. And so, you know, uh, hearing conversations between my dad and his brother, that was very, uh, very common. Relatives visiting from Iran here, you know, coming here or having phone conversations. So the language was always in the background, maybe is one way to, to put it. Then as a teenager, like I said, kind of after after September 11th, this, this aspect of my identity, I became more interested in. The environment was kind of politicizing that 
aspect of my identity. Uh, and so it was at that time that I decided I really want to engage in studying this language in a more detailed way. And so, you know, at that time, I began learning the morphology of Persian, written Persian, uh, learning how to read, uh, trying to develop my skills, you know, putting together more complex ideas uh, in, in sentences. And then when I uh, was in graduate school, part of the requirement uh, for my degree program was you could do either one of two things. You could demonstrate high proficiency in a foreign language, or you could demonstrate proficiency in a research method, take a certain course of study and statistical analysis. Um, and so I opted for the language. And so at the University of Minnesota, where I did my graduate work, I began, uh, you know, they offered Persian at that time. Uh, it's regrettable to say they no longer offer Persian. Persian language has been on the chopping block, you know, along with, with many languages all around the country. Uh, but I, you know, then began kind of the formal academic study of the language uh, with my professor there, Professor Sadri, who I, was a really interesting guy, and I, I credit him a lot for, for helping me. Um, and so through that, then I was able to demonstrate high proficiency and get my certification uh, although I can say, you know, the, the moment when I think about my own, you know, you said, how did this become a working language? Uh, there's a really particular moment that I remember that when I was in Iran in 2013, my father and I went because one of my cousins was was getting married. She she and her then fiance, now husband live in Australia, but they they went back to Iran to have their wedding. And so so we went as well. And there's a ceremony uh, that happens before the wedding, which is uh, where uh, a religious cleric comes over to the home and they actually formally like sign the marriage license at that time. So that happens before the wedding in, in uh, uh, Iranian culture uh, among Shiite Muslims, I should say. It's a practice. And so we were at this ceremony and it was all uh, extended families. There's probably 50 people there. And something had happened to me about a week before uh, we were in Tehran. And, you know, whenever I go to a new city, I've always had this habit uh, where I just like to go for a walk. I like to just go for long walks by myself and just try to get a feel like, what is this place like? How, you know, how is it to walk around? I did that when I was studying abroad in Poland and in Russia as an undergrad. And whenever I go somewhere new, I just like to walk around. And so somewhat to the concern of my father and my relatives they were like well are you sure you know do you feel comfortable and i said yeah you know i i want to do that and they said okay sure go for it uh and uh so i'm walking around north tehran and in iran there's this practice well people will just ask for directions all the time like people will just pull over and say hey where is such and such street and so Obviously, I didn't know anywhere. I didn't know anything of where I was going. And all of a sudden, a car pulls up alongside me and yells like, you know, hey, hey, boy, uh, where is, you know, whatever street? Uh, and I, I, you know, kind of say like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I don't know. I, I'm not from here. I'm sure I, I came out as something like I'm not a native of Tehran or something like that. So that happens once. Five minutes later, it happens again. Five minutes later, it happens again. 
And by the fourth time, I was just like, I was feeling self-conscious. Like I keep saying, I don't know. And every time I say, I don't know, the person in the car kind of just looks at me like, like, uh, you know, frustrated. That doesn't feel good. And so the fourth one, I just said, yeah, you're really close, two blocks ahead and then take the next left or something like that. <laughs> I just was frustrated. And I told that story to my dad and my uncle. And then they thought it was funny. They were just like, oh, yeah, you know, that, of course, that happened. Uh, and then so we're at this ceremony for the wedding, uh, signing the documents. And one of my other relatives said, everyone, quiet, be quiet. Something really funny happened to Robert, and he's going to tell you about it in Farsi, you know, because not everyone there spoke English. And so then I, I had, I was faced with this prospect of like, now I have to tell a joke in Farsi. Uh, and I, 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 I did it the best I could. And uh, when I finished, it got a laugh, like that they understood what I said and, and the humor of it came through. And so at that moment, I was like, okay, maybe I should have more confidence in my proficiency in this language. Like I was able to tell a joke and, and they all thought it was they all thought it was funny. So that for me is a moment I think about like, yeah, uh, I, I can, uh, I can, you know, communicate in this. I recently had a friend tell me that, you know, that you're getting to a more advanced level when you can make a joke in a language. So, I think, <laughs> so you recently completed a book project. Can you tell us a little bit more about the book and what questions you tried to answer with it? Yeah, thanks. So the book is called uh, Post-Revolutionary Iran, The Leader, The People, and The Three Powers. Uh, it just came out with Lexington Books. Uh, and I can actually tell your listeners, uh, if they go to the publisher's website, which is roman.com slash lexington, R-O-W-M-A-N dot com slash Lexington. I have a promo code here where they can get uh, they can get 30% off. And so the promo code is Lex30Auth21. That's L-E-X 3030-A-U-T-H-21. Uh, and if they enter that promo code, they can get 30% off on the book. Uh, I'm really proud of the book. Uh, the book in part was you know, it was the book I wanted to read about Iran that I wasn't finding in the literature. And so what the book tries to do, like the, you know, the subtitle says, the leader, the people, and the three powers. The three powers is a reference to uh, the three branches of government, uh, executive, legislative, and judicial. And that phrase, the three powers, is drawn from Iran's constitution. That's how uh, the constitution re refers to the three branches. And so what I wanted to do was now, uh, at the time I started working on this, it was the 40-year anniversary of the Islamic Republic. Now it's past 42. What I wanted to do is first go back to this foundational document, uh, Iran's constitution, which I, is actually republished in an appendix in the book, uh, in, in English in its entirety, the official English language version. I wanted to go back and say, how does the constitution define kind of the expressed powers of the different branches of government. And then, you know, what is the role for this other kind of unique institution called the leader or the supreme leader, which is also, you know, clearly defined in the in the constitution as well. So what I what I do in the first instance is go back to the foundational text and engage with the debate among constitutional scholars in Iran about uh, how they interpret 
this document. And what I found was a lot of the same debate uh, that we have in the United States, say, between uh, originalists and textualists and how they think about what the Constitution defines as the powers of the branches differently. That debate has been present since the inception of the Islamic Republic, uh, and it it is still very contentious today. And so on the one hand, the book is an exercise in constitutional analysis. On the other, it is historical. And I apply a kind of historical institutionalist approach to say, well, how has the power of these branches and how they relate to one another uh, actually evolved over time, the, the kind of push and pull, or you know, how has the pendulum swung back and forth between the Republican institutions, executive, legislative uh, being elected, and the Islamic revolutions. So that is really what I detail in the first half of the book. And in the second half, I open up the framework more broadly to look at state-society relations. Um, so I have chapters that focus on uh, social movements in Iran. I look at the women's movement, environmental justice movement, economic justice movements, as well as the role of the media, the role of political parties, uh, and so on. So it is, uh, yeah, really an effort to think about the foundations of the Islamic Republic system, how has it developed over time then with an eye toward uh, what what possible futures might look like. Uh, and it's, I think, a really critical moment right now as the, uh, there's a kind of generational transition happening. Now, I I Iran is a very young country. Um, something, you know, the, the figure is kind of disputed, but something like two thirds of the population was born after the revolution. So they have no practical experience of living under any other type of political system. And so arguments that you would often hear like, uh, well, you know, things might not be great now and there, there might be a lot, there might be corruption now and inefficiency in the economy, but at least it's not as bad as it was under the Shah, for instance. You know, I argue that that type of justification is increasingly going to be falling on deaf ears because, you know, you're speaking to a population that has no lived experience uh, as a, a, a con contrasting reference to uh, this, this current system. So I'm really interested in the dynamics of regime reproduction. The book is, is really interested in uh, how this regime has proven to be so resilient despite you know, uh, an eight-year war with Iraq, uh, despite economic sanctions and, and uh, kind of rhetorical castigation, it has persisted. You know, uh, what can we say about these kind of dynamics of repression, reward, reform that we, uh, you know, we see in, in all types of authoritarian regimes? So my next question, I think, is unfair, but what does your research tell us about what to expect next in, in U.S.-Iran relations? Yeah, the million dollar question. So all of the, uh, if I had the answer, I would probably be at, uh, uh, you know, a think tank writing on white paper and, uh, you know, having a very different, uh, a different, a very different professional uh, experience. But, you know, I can, I can say, well, how does the present look uh, historically? What, what we know, or, you know, one thing that I've learned 
uh, from this very close study of the last 40 years of the Islamic Republic uh, system is that an improvement in U.S.-Iran relations is not impossible. Uh, it has happened. You, yeah, Sean, you may remember in the late 90s, uh, in 1997, Iran, uh, Iranians elected the most reformist president that, that they've had since the revolution, a man named Mohammad Khatami. And President Khatami actually came to the United States and he visited the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. And he, he gave a talk in which he raised this idea of the dialogue of civilizations. You know, that was the time when Huntington's notion of the clash of civilizations was being debated uh, a lot. A lot of ink was being spilled, both in support and critique of Huntington. And so Khatami comes to the U.S. and says, no, it's not a civilizational clash between Islam and the West. Uh, we want to have a dialogue of civilizations based on mutual respect and mutual understanding. The interesting thing is, so Khatami comes in in 97, and it's in the second term of the Clinton administration, which, you know, uh, comparing uh, the Republicans and Democrats, Democrats ha have been more inclined toward diplomacy, uh, toward Iran. And they initially make some progress uh, uh, in terms of establishing kind of more normal diplomatic exchanges uh, in the domains of sport, for example, and kind of arts and culture. Then uh, September 11th happens. Uh, now it's a new U.S. president, Bush, the Bush administration. And initially in the period, you know, uh, October 2001 through December, there was some uh, military cooperation between Iran and the U.S. in combating the Taliban, uh, who was, who was, uh, you know, uh, uh, a major security threat to Iran. Uh, the, you know, the Iran and the Taliban were were at odds with each other for some time, and so, you know, this isn't just diplomatic co cooperation. This was a you know military kind of the highest level where Iranian uh, the Iranian military and Security forces were sharing intelligence uh, about Taliban targets in Afghanistan. The U.S. was using that to have more precision in their airstrikes. Then in January 2002 comes the axis of evil speech uh, in President Bush's first State of the Union address. Relations totally sour. Ahmadinejad, much more conservative, hardline figure in Iran's politics, is elected president in 2005. And it's a really uh, lost opportunity there for an improvement in relations. And so, you know, looking ahead, what to expect in U.S.-Iran relations, we have in the U.S. President Biden, you know, early signs showing he's trying to revive uh, the diplomatic approach from the Obama, uh, President Obama's years. What's going on in Iran is is even, you know, is, is interesting. So Iran now, uh, President Rouhani, not quite a reformist, but kind of a centrist, maybe a, a pragmatist, we might say. Uh, it was under his term that the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the, the so-called Iran nuclear deal, was achieved. He was reelected in 2017, largely running on the success of the Iran nuclear deal, his presidential term uh, ends this year. There's going to be another, a new presidential election in Iran in June, June 18th. 
Rouhani is constitutionally prohibited from running for a third term. Iran's system says no, two consecutive terms uh, and that's it. So there will be a new Iranian president. The question is, uh, will that president be more like a Hatemi, a reformist, or an Ahmadinejad? I, uh, I uh, am hesitant to make an, a prediction about an election, but just if we look at the polling data, there has been a noticeable shift in Iranian public attitudes uh, toward this idea of the usefulness of diplomacy with the U.S. in in re- really since uh, May 2018, when uh, the U.S. withdrew unilaterally from the nuclear deal, uh, Iranian opinion has really soured on that. Uh, and so I suspect there will be a more conservative, uh, more hardline Iranian president, in which case th- there, you know, the necessary condition for an improvement in relations is mutual political will on both sides. And so the unfortunate thing is, though, that is now present in the U.S., I've, I suspect and I, you know, regret to say that probably by later this year, um, I'm not so sure if that'll be present from Iran's side. Do you anticipate a time when you will be able to return to Iran for research trips or for professional reasons? Uh, yeah, I, you know, so I guess there's the one side of this is the, I mean, I, I could return for a trip to Iran tomorrow if it, if it was necessary. I, I have here, I know this is audio only, but I have my Iranian passport <laughs> and my Iranian birth certificate. It's called a Shanas Nameh. So Iranian nationality law, you know, uh, the civil code on nationality has elements both of use sanguinis and use soli, like rights of the blood and rights of soil. So anyone who is born outside of Iran, uh, but whose father is Iranian, which is describes my situation, is considered an Iranian national. So because of that, I'm, I'm in a kind of unique situation where you know, at passport control, I go through the Iranian national line. Whereas if I was traveling on my American passport, there would be many more complications. Uh, and I wouldn't just be able to walk freely on the street like I described and go anywhere I want to go. Uh, so because I have Iranian nationality, there's no, there's no technical obstacle in that way. I do hope to return, you know, in the near future um, I'm, it's a, it's a, a good situation. I, I've been able to meet, uh, and make contacts with some colleagues, uh, who, who teach in Iran. There was a gentleman actually a few years ago who had a visiting position at Portland state, uh, who, who teaches at, uh, who teaches in, uh, Tehran university, uh, which is really the most prominent and most prestigious university in Iran. Uh, a few years ago, I was able to appear on Iranian state TV, which was a kind of uh, surreal experience. But there are uh, contacts, uh, you know, and, and obviously I still have uh, family in Iran, uh, two aunts and several cousins. You know, uh, I hope to, uh, to the extent, the, the extent to which I could conduct research is a little bit more tricky. It depends on the nature of the research. but. I do, you know, uh, I do hope that soon, not only someone like me, but 
American academics can go to Iran and conduct research or, or anyone and, and in the other direction as well. Uh, you know, this was a huge challenge. Uh, Iran was one of the countries included in the uh, Muslim ban, you know, from the previous administration. So what I would love to see is more ease of travel in both directions. I must say, you know, I was quite nervous in 2013 when I took that trip and uh, we landed at, at Imam Khomeini Airport in Tehran it was after midnight, uh, a flight coming in from Frankfurt and, you know, get off the plane and get in the line for passport control. And everyone on the flight is in the Iranian national line. There were no, uh, to my, not to my memory anyway, maybe they were behind us or something. And I got up to the desk and I, you know, presented my Iranian passport and the officer kind of looked down at the passport, looked at me looked at the passport again, and then just asked me in Farsi uh, first time. And I said, yeah. And then I remember the sound so well, chuchum, chuchum. you know, he stamped the passport and he said, you're, you're welcome, you know, come right in. And at that moment, I felt just such a profound sense of relief. And I walked right in. And I remember at the bottom of the escalator, there was someone standing there ha- handing out roses and on each rose was a little uh, advertisement for a restaurant, like, you know, go attend, go visit this restaurant while you're here. And I saw my cousin on the other side of this glass partition. And I went over and uh, just tossed the rose over the partition to my cousin. And I thought I would never do that even in an American airport, <laughs> like toss something over like that. But I just felt so comfortable. I just did that. And, you know, uh, it, it it's uh, just a feeling that, you know, there, there is, I think, a lot of fear uh, and consternation, you know, that many Americans and probably many Iranian Americans have about like, can I go back and can I visit the country? Is it safe? Am I going to be arrested or have a hard time? Uh, and I can say in my experience, I didn't experience any of that. I felt totally safe and comfortable. And uh, yeah, I, you know, I look forward to the chance of, of going back again. Wonderful. I have a question completely unrelated to your research. Uh, are there any famous Persian foods we should be aware of or seek out in Middle East restaurants? Ah, uh, yes. So here we have an embarrassment of riches. Uh, we could, uh, I could go on for another 45 minutes probably uh, on this topic. Uh, I'll give you, how about two savory and one sweet? Does Sounds that sound great. good? Yes. Okay. So too savory, I would say the, this dish, is, it's called gourmet sabzi. Um, and I would say it's, it's, you know, essentially the unofficial national dish of Iran. Uh, gourmet sabzi is a, a stew uh, that has usually uh, braised lamb, but it could be beef, it could be mushroom if you wanted a vegetarian option. Uh, but it has this uh, really nice braised... Uh, yeah, lamb, beef, or, or mushroom, I suppose. And then some combination of herbs like parsley, cilantro, uh, dried fenugreek, which is really the important flavor, uh, a kind of a really appetizing, bitter flavor, as mm. odd as that may be to say. Uh, it also has dried limes, uh, the small Omani limes, sometimes they're called, or Persian limes. You, you can see them called that as well. Uh, usually kidney beans. And then from there, there's many different, re, you know, variations on it. I've seen it with 
potato or onion. Uh, every kind of region has its own has its own variation. But the key thing is really the fenugreek, the limes, and and the the meat itself, the lamb. Uh, but it's really really delicious. And Iranians in the diaspora uh, even have a International Gormasabzi Day, which is two days really? after thank two days after Thanksgiving, when Iranians will have you know this is a beautiful thing about being in a diaspora is you get to have Thanksgiving dinner and then you get to have <laughs> your you know uh, Iranian uh, dish of Gormasabzi. So that is a good, really good one. You know, if you if you go to a Persian restaurant, for sure you're going to see all types of different kebabs and probably delicious rice. But if you want to, you know, try something, try this uh, stew, Hormis uh, Abzi. The second savory one, which Iranians uh, all around the world will fight over, and it'll be the first thing that people fight over to make sure they get, uh, and that's something called Tadig. And Tadig, literally, Tah means bottom, and Dig means pot. And it's the crispy rice that forms at the bottom of the pot where you cook your rice. Uh, so the rice, you know, usually will have saffron, maybe some turmeric, uh, and that, that delicious crispy rice that smells almost like popcorn, you know, that, that is, uh, something that any Iranian will, you know, listening to this will be salivating, thinking about, you know, their, their, their mom or their grandma's, uh, tadik. So those are two good savory dishes in terms of the desserts, probably people know about, Persian ice creams. Uh, there's a special one that I I had for the first time actually in Iran. Uh, it's called falude, or sometimes you'll see as palude with a P rather than an F. Essentially, it's kind of like a combination of a granita and a sorbet. Uh, it's like a vermicelli rice noodle. And then on top, you have some type of like uh, syrup, usually like rose water syrup. Then there may be uh, lime juice, pistachio, but it's a really refreshing uh, and really unique kind of uh, Persian dessert using this rice noodle. Um, great for a hot day. That sounds so wonderful. Well, Robert, I really want to thank you. I think that this is a fascinating talk. And to all of our listeners, if you want to find Robert's book, we're going to have the link in the show notes along with that promo code. Thank you so much, Robert. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening to Dispatch 7. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. And please check back in two weeks for the next episode.